A Conversation with David Ruggiero, chef, author, TV personality, and now novelist, is never dull. His new memoir and cookbook, A Tomato Grows in Brooklyn, sets the culinary tone for his life. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with David Ruggiero. He is um, an author, a chef, and he's written a new book, which is about to come out called A Tomato Grows in Brooklyn. So we're going to be talking about that and other things. So welcome, David. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, so you know, you, yeah. I, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate it. And I love uh, your podcast. Oh, really, really. You. I listened to a lot of the segments over the weekend. Great, great. And I love New Orleans. Have you been here a lot? When I was on Food Network, I shared uh, the production team with Emerald Live. Uh So when Emerald was on, I was off and vice versa. And I went down to New Orleans quite a few times and love it, love it to that. A lot of Italian people, I have cousins down there, so they'll be listening. There are a lot of Italian people here. Do you know, of course, I would say that many of the people here are Sicilian and my grandmother, was, you know, she was an adult when she came to New Orleans and it was important to her that everybody called her Sicilian because when she was born, you know, it was still a little bit separate and a little contentious. So she always talked about being Sicilian, not Italian. (laughs) My, my, uh, My father came here when he was 14 years old from Sicily. From mm-hmm. a village called Castellamare de Golfo in the Tropani region in the north, uh, northwest part of Sicily, right on the ocean. Uh-huh. And uh, he's the same way. He, he's first and foremost Sicilian. So if you say Italian, yeah, yeah his name was Severa. Severa, you're t- no, no, I'm Sicilian. And you know, <laughs> I'll make you some, I'll make you laugh. Number two, wasn't Italian. He was so proud to be American. He told everybody, and on Thanksgiving, we had to have turkey and we had macaroni too, don't get me wrong. <laughs> right. But the American holidays, he was so proud to be, uh, be an American. So yeah, my, grand- my grandfather was like that. He was born with the name Francesco and he changed his name to Frank because wow. he wanted to be American and he he wanted people to see his name written down and it was Frank, you know. And uh, if you called him Francesco, like one of his cousins or, uh, you know, somebody like that would call him Francesco because that was what they grew up calling him. And he would yeah. correct them, I'm Frank, you know, all of that. So, well, yeah, very American. I want to tell you something. I wrote this book for one particular reason. Uh, it's really, it's a, it's a love story to Brooklyn growing up Italian-American. But I also want to tell you, when I grew up, my maternal 
maternal uh, parents, uh, my mother's parents, they came from Naples. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather came over here and uh, to, to get down to the root of it, they were embarrassed back then in the, in the 50s and 60s. And they changed their name. Well, the last name, my great-grandmother, her last name was Coagurello. That was a mouthful. Yeah. She didn't ask them to. They changed it for her. When she arrived, they called her Claro. They changed it. But my grandfather and my grandmother were embarrassed back then to speak Italian. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough that I was orphaned when I was five. And uh, I was brought up by my grandmother and my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother didn't speak a word of English. And unfortunately, her Italian wasn't great. She spoke pure dialect, the dialect of Naples. Naples. So my, my wife, she studied in Puglia, in the University in Puglia. So she's very proud of her Italian. When I speak the Italian, because between my father who spoke Sicilian and my you know, my mother's family spoke Neapolitan, she pulls her hair out. That's not Italian. I don't know what you're saying. Uh, so you gotta laugh sometimes. But going back to the book, I feel that at this particular time, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I feel in somewhat the Italian people a little bit of being attacked. And I don't want to go into politics. That's not what this is about. But between Columbus and all this stuff, I mean, in Philadelphia last year, they, they took down the Mario Lanza Plaza and this and that. Why? I mean, we're, we're, we're part of uh, the culture of, uh, of America and Brooklyn. You can't. Brooklyn's a hot place to go now. Everybody comes to New York, they want to go to Brooklyn. Right. But we were big Brooklyn. We helped to build Brooklyn and make it. We painted probably two of the colors that call it Brooklyn and made it such a colorful place to go. And, uh, you know, so I felt in this book that there's some text that I write about a little bit in defense of Brooklyn. And then from there, I try to give you the colorful, what it was really the, what people look at today and they think what Brooklyn is, but it was, was a lot of the Italian Americans. And uh, I was lucky to grow up in the 60s and 70s and 80s and in uh, the Italian sections of Brooklyn where the Neapolitans live next to the Calabrians, the Calabrians live next door to the Sicilians, the music was playing in the backyard. And uh, what happened was is that the Neapolitans traded recipes with the Calabrians and vice versa. And after years, it melted together. And I say that uh, when you, we have our own cuisine. We're not Italian, it's not Italian cuisine. Right. It's Italian-American cuisine, and it's very particular, and it's true in uh, New Orleans, too, mm -hmm. that it's kind of melted together and made, not only that, but in Brooklyn, I speak for Brooklyn, we got our own language, too, where we speak. Besides our English and our accent, in the when we speak Italian, we got our own words and stuff like that. And the funniest thing is, when you go to Italy, I go to my father's town, and they go, uh, where are you from? They don't say Brooklyn in Italy. They say Brooklyna. And it's become like part of the Italian language. So you say, I was born in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. And then even the Italians in Italy, they, they, they love the whole, uh, what Brooklyn represented over the, the history of it with the Italian Americans. So, so that, that's, uh, that's the real reason why I, I wrote that. I, I wrote this, sat down and wrote this book. It's not just the recipes. Right. It's also, yeah, it's the uh, traditions. I have grandchildren now. I feel 
very responsible to trade, to hand down them our traditions, which are dying. In some places, they're dying. But like at this time of the year, last weekend, we were cooking tomatoes in my backyard to make the posada and jar it for the winter. Uh -huh. We still do that. And in a week or two, we're going to be making the wine. And it's so important to me that my grandchildren and that my great-grandchildren not only know where we came from, but they understand all those traditions growing the tomatoes. Now, of course, a tomato grows in Brooklyn. There's a little play on the, the movie. Sure, at the, sure. At yeah. all, the, all the young people listening on your, your podcast, there was a movie called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. So it's a little, <laughs> little uh, literary uh, license here. I took a little bit from the, the movie. and uh, But uh, I think people will find it a fun book. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important that we all remember that it's Italian-American. It's not Italian. And that it, if you go to Italy, you're almost never going to find something that is exactly like it is here because it's totally changed. And the other thing that I think is very interesting is talking to Italian people today. And I mean people from Italy when I say Italian people their traditions and many of the, the sort of modern Italian way is different from the way it was when our grandparents and great-grandparents came over from Italy. And so what we think of as Italian traditions are not exactly the same as current day Italian traditions in Italy. So they've become yeah. ours. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's like, this is our tradition. And um, yes. I, I think it's it's wonderful because it just makes us part of that whole American melting pot that I think we are a very important part of. And we are lucky enough too, that we come from a heritage of a great culinary tradition so that we've actually affected the food of America. Well, I say, you know, predominantly we're Southern Italians, especially in Brooklyn. And I think that's very true of, uh, of New Orleans. Oh, so totally, totally. Southern Italians. Mm -hmm. And they were very frugal people in Italy before they came here. Right. Uh, they, they grew their tomatoes. They had their gardens. Uh, they had their ways of doing things. And like you said, it's come here. It's transformed to become our own. But... The roots are still there from sure. Italy, from the, the southern Italy. And really, our cuisine here is, 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 I think today you could say to people, really, it's become one of the most popular cuisines in its own right. Not only here, mm -hmm. throughout the different parts of the world. And it's still based, it's still sculpted by, by the supply of the food, which is defined by the seasons, right? Mm -hmm. But I say, I use a term, I really say that all our food is defined by the olive and the vine. Because for the Southern Italians, that's where it all starts, the olive and the vine. Uh -huh. And then everything else follows behind. But it's just that we, we've, we've ended up, and you know, when you read through the book, I had some people read through the book and it was a very hard book. Uh, when I write in Italian, the, the title's in Italian, to edit, because I don't write it in Italian. Uh -huh. I write it in the dialect of Brooklyn. So 
<laughs> some of the people, like, well, I had actually, I had a very, very nice woman in Italy read it. And she says, well, why you use this? It's not Italian. It's Italian-American. And uh, so not a, then I tell you what, not a, life is colorful. And so is the, the recipes in the cuisine. I think that when you thumb through the book, you're going to find a lot of color within the, the cuisine itself. It's a big, robust, not often subtle. It's usually, you know, grab you by the ears, pull you in, and just abundanza. It's just a wonderful, right. Right. savory. Yeah, I say, I wake up, uh, when I was a kid, I woke up and my grandmother, I, to this day, I wake up on Sunday and I almost think I can hear it. Sunday morning, and it sounds like a cliche, but I lived it. Sunday morning, I would open my eyes and I would hear the sounds of Kalo Bhuti. She used to love to play Kalo Bhuti in the morning on Sunday. Okay. And I could smell the bread baking in the oven. She baked her own bread. And she had a pot with the, with the sun. So in Brooklyn, we call it gravy. I know uh, people on the podcast said, no, it's not gravy. It's sort of whatever. <laughs> whatever you want to call it, knock your socks off. But we call it gravy. She had a pot that was as big as Prospect Park Lake. It was huge. And when you woke up, you could smell. And you know, in those days, we didn't have air conditioning. So right, the summer, right. the windows were open. Right. You could smell hot sauce. We could smell the next door neighbor's sauce. You could hear the music playing. <clears throat> very, very, you know, we didn't have, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I just took it in stride, you know sure. what I'm saying? Well, you're a child. Today, you just think that's what it is, yeah. Oh, yeah. But today, I look back, I remember back. I said, my God, I was a lot lucky. I, I, had my, I had my troubles when I was a kid, but in the end, that whole Italian experience lifted me up and carried me through my life and, I believe, helped me to be as successful as, as I got to. I mean, I'm not saying... Uh, well, you were very successful as a chef. You were very successful. You uh... well, you know, back then, I uh, I wanted to cook. I, I realized I had gotten in trouble. I, I I'm not ashamed to say because I want everybody, the kids, to hear. By the time I was ten years old, I had been arrested six times. I was a troubled kid. I was a uh, you know, in the streets of Brooklyn in the '60s and '70s, it was a rough place. And uh, when I turned 17, going on 18, I realized that either I was going to stay in the streets and end up in jail for my life or dead. So I decided, no, I'm going to cook. But in those days, the Italian restaurants in New York City, I would best to say they were red sauce places. Mm -hmm. They really were not, when you said the best restaurants in New York, they were not at the top of the list. Uh -huh. And I found older copies of, J of uh, Gourmet magazine. And there was a writer named Jay Jacobs that used to write for Gourmet and he'd write the best restaurants on the East and West Coast. And in those days, Jay Jacobs said to me, listen, pal, the best restaurants in New York are French and the top of the list is Lutas, Le Caraval, and you know, there two or three other ones. So I went to Lutas, which is a, was a legendary place. The owner's name was Andre Soltner but no one ever left Lutes. Years, people didn't leave. The, uh -huh. There's no possibility. He said to me, I never have an opening, so I'm sorry. So I went to Le Caravelle. And uh, 
I went to the door of the kitchen. It was right on in Midtown on Fifth Avenue and 55th Street. And I looked inside the door. It was like a vision from heaven for me. Here was a big brigade, all French, young Frenchmen in pristine white uniforms with the white toque, 40 or 50 of them moving in like a ballet, quiet. And all you could hear was the old chef, his name was Fezeguet, screaming in French and this and that. Oh my God, I, this, is, this is for me. This is it, I found it. Well, for most people, 13 is a very unlucky number, but not for me. I went 12 times and every time I went, before I could open my mouth, Fezeguet said, no, would never, wouldn't hire me because I was American. And uh, the 13th time I went, unfortunately, he had a mild heart attack. He did go back. But the, so the sous chef was on the pass and the sous chefs, I went after when the service ended, uh, ended. his name was Andre Moisan. I went up to him and I said, chef, he says, before I could say another word, he says, you start on Monday. Why? I start on Monday. Oh my God. Now, being from Brooklyn, you learn, good and bad, to lie your way into things. You, 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 sure you maneuver, you know what I'm right, saying? Right, right, right. Of course I told them I had experience, otherwise they would have never hired me. Right. I ran to the B. Dalton bookstore in Kings Plaza on Farpush area, and I bought all the French cookbooks I could get. I got Craig, Craig Claiborne, Julia Childs, this, and over the weekend I memorized Every French term, my little pea head would, 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 could figure out. Uh -huh. I up on Monday morning, and it must have been 120 degrees in the kitchen. It was brutally hot. But let me tell you something. No French, no English was spoken in the, thing, in the kitchen. The more they yelled at me, the more I loved it, because I, I really wanted that discipline. I knew I needed it. So... I went almost a year and I, I survived and I loved it. And I, I was going to a store. There was a- uh, Did you learn uh, to speak French? I, there was a school called Berlitz, uh -huh. Rockefeller Center, one of these like quick learning. I would go there. I'd make notes during a week of all the words they would say in the kitchen. And they were all curse words, of course. Of course. <laughs> and when I thought Madame Dumas at Berlitz and I said, Madame Dumas, what does Conard mean? And this and that, she goes, oh no. They don't speak like that at the uh, Caravelle. I said, sweetheart, if you don't tell me what these words mean, I don't need you anymore. Make a long story short, a negative, very bad situation. On a, on a Friday, on a Saturday night at one o'clock in the morning, I'm on a train in a Red Hook section of Brooklyn, which in those days was very bad. I get in, the guy, a guy tries to rob me. He stabs me through the hand and I end up fighting with him and police came onto the car and hit me with nightstick. I woke up in the Brooklyn House of Detention. I ended up in Rikers Island for two weeks and I saw my life passing by in front of me. I says, you know, because they weren't going to sort out who was telling the truth and who was lying in this fight. I says, I lost my job at the Caravelle. I knew it. I knew it. I said, I lost it. I went that, that when I got off of Rikers Island, uh, cousins of mine said, look, disappear for a while. And We'll, we'll make sure that this disappeared, that this goes away, okay? All right. I go to Caraval to see if I could talk to Fezeguet, and he was standing there, and my hand was all wrapped up from being stabbed, and uh, he looked at the desperation in my eyes. And then at this point, this man had never said a nice word to me. I had tears in my eyes. I almost begged for my job back, and he said to me, son, in English, the first words he said to me in English, son, <laughs> 
go, you, you didn't lose your job. Go to the piss and work. And see, I had heard for that first year that I was no good because I wasn't French and I didn't work in, her, uh, in France. I knew I had to disappear because of my legal problems. So at the end of, when we sat down to have lunch, I said to him, uh, chef, I know I can't become French, but could I work in France? He says, you don't want to work in France. Oh, yes, I do. He's okay. We'll talk about it tomorrow. The next day he said to me, son, Monday, you have to be at the Hotel Negresco in Nice. And that started a 14 month adventure. I worked first at the Negresco in Le Chanticleer with a chef that at that time had been voted by the Gomeo as the best young chef in France. His name was Jacques Maximin. He opened my eyes to what the world could really be. Uh-huh. And before I returned to New York, I went to the Southwest, <clears throat> to the foothills of the Pyrenees and worked with the chef that I consider the greatest chef of the 20th century, Michel Girard. Uh-huh. He taught me what magic really, the word magic, how it was spelled and what it meant. I came back to, to New York. I knew as a kid, 17, I wanted to be a cook, a chef or whatever. After France, it was, it became my religion. And I went on at 25 to become the executive chef of Le Caravelle. And then Pierre Cardin, who uh, the famous uh, clothing designer had all bought Maxime's in Paris, the original. Paris. Uh opened uh, Maxime's in New York, and it had been a critical disaster in New York. He had a parade of French chefs come over from France, and one after another, the New York Times eviscerated them. He hired me, I think it was a Hail Mary pass. Uh Let me give this kid a shot. And uh, the critics raved about it. And that was when my career with Maxime, when I was at Maxime's, my, my life changed. And soon after PBS, I ended up starting to own restaurants. I ended up on PBS with my own series called Little Italy. Uh-huh. I wrote a companion cookbook uh, with Artisan called Little Italy. Then I did another series with PBS. Uh, and it actually was filmed in Sicily and Naples. And then I was doing guest spots on Food Network. There was a very, very brilliant chef, Gunasara Moulton, who uh-huh. was doing uh, a, uh, a show called Cooking Live. It was a live one hour taking phone calls. Very hard to do, five days a week. She couldn't do it every day of the week, so I would fill in. But I'm a little bit over the top on TV. And I started having fun with people who were calling in and asking questions that were less than intelligent. <laughs> and one day, after I did this for two, three weeks, the head of programming called me in and uh, I, her name, I never even forget, her name was Eileen Oputat. And she sat me down and she said, uh, I thought she was going to tell me I couldn't, because I got into one of the callers that day live on the air and I thought she was going to tell me, you never ought to step foot in this, these studios again. <laughs> so she said to me, would you like to have your own show? I turned around, I looked behind me. I said, what is this, a gag or something? Is somebody joking around here? No, 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 we want to give you own show. And Ruggiero to go was, became reality. I was on PBS, Food Network at the same time. And then a stupid crime upended me. And in 24 hours, I lost everything. At that point, I had five restaurants. 
650 employees. I was building the sixth restaurant at the uh, Parker Meridian Hotel in New York, which was going to be my crowning jewel. And in 24 hours, I lost it all. I talk about sobering. Yeah. Over the next three, four, five years, I rebuilt. I started opening restaurants again, but not the high-end restaurants. And uh, So you were keeping a lower profile, basically. I wanted to keep as low a profile as possible because in New York, I was, you know, I, the press was looking to, 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 to kill me. Right. And, uh, anyway, I survived. I'm still alive, as you can see. <laughs> and you have grandchildren. <laughs> I have grandchildren. I have, uh, from my time in France, I have a daughter in France, in, in uh, Corsica, and I have two grandchildren there, too. So I have grandchildren on both, both uh, continents, and I've given up the restaurant business. Uh, I, I just can't do it physically anymore. Uh -huh. uh, so I started writing. And so this cookbook is not my first of, of uh, foray back into the writing world. I started with the novels. And I wrote a horror novel. And I put it on a platform where publishers would see it. I didn't have an agent. Uh -huh. And somebody should call me up and said to me, uh, listen, is it still available? I come on, what is this, a gig? I look behind me again. There's somebody kidding around here. I didn't really think I'd be able to sell it. Make a long story short, small publishing company in Texas bought it, then purchased two more novels from me. I wrote three novels with them over the last two years. And then he said to me, listen, never had, I've never published a cookbook. And I see some of the cookbooks you wrote would you consider doing another cookbook? Mm -hmm. Sure, no problem. So this cookbook is my first in many years, and this is the first for this publisher also. And I think that everybody is going to be very happy with it and pleasantly surprised. It's beautiful. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. The photographs, it's just wonderful. I tried to make it as clean as possible while still giving you a little bit of what it was to grow up, but take you on a little adventure. Uh -huh. I tell a lot of stories in the book and I wanted you to have a feel, a flavor of what it was to grow up in those streets back then that we call, in New York, it's called the County of Kings. And to, to grow up in Brooklyn, the County of Kings and all the characters that were around in those days. And uh, like I said, we were all the, even with the bad things, I'll tell you what, I was a very lucky person. I survived a lot of my friends growing up. I don't have any friends. They all died or went to jail. And no one left when I grew up, not one. And I can say, thank God, that God looked down at me. And he's now given me wonderful grandchildren and a clear mind and a clear sight. And with that clarity, I I wrote this book. It took me a year and a half to write it. And because uh, I didn't want it to be a cartoon, you know, sometimes these stories start to, when they talk about uh, being in the street of Brooklyn or whatever, it becomes like a cartoon. That's uh -huh. not what I want. Yeah. I didn't want to yeah. be overly serious either. Just want to give you a little taste, a little of the onion, garlic, olive oil, and of course the tomatoes. And <laughs> I hope that you, you, you know, you've seen it. I hope that yes. you come out October 12th. I got lots of grandchildren. I got to support. So go out and buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> so are you doing, are you doing any kind of book signing or anything like that? Is that scheduled? Uh, I'm taking it slow. 
okay. with the COVID and everything. Right. You know, people been a little bit, I've been a little hesitant because I want to be careful. I spend a lot of time with my grandchildren. I live on the water now on the South shore of Long Island on the ocean. I have wonderful garden. I have 50, almost 60 tomato plants and oh, wow. peppers and this and that, that, that. And I have my grid, I have fig trees and apple trees. It's an oasis. Yeah. I don't wanna I don't wanna bring COVID to my my grandchildren and stuff. Yeah. So yeah. if there's opportunities, I definitely would go sudden, but I'm trying to limit it and instead come on wonderful shows like yours. And I'll try to spread the word that way. Um, well, I will tell you that as a person who also grew up eating a lot of this food, this book was really, really a joy because um, I, I saw my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my aunts and uncles. Um, I had, my, my great-grandfather was a butcher in the French market and his children, my great-uncles were butchers in New Orleans. I remember my grandfather who was also Sicilian, but all the food was on my grandmother's side. My grandfather would go fishing and he'd get crabs and eels and all these things. And he'd trade with my great uncles who were butchers who would have kidneys left over or brains left over, you know, that you have to get rid of. That's like somebody has got to eat it tonight because it won't last till tomorrow. And so I ate all of that stuff growing up. And they would, they would trade my grandfather's crabs for somebody's brains, you know, that kind of thing. And this book reminded me of all of that sort of thing where it was just part of your life, you know, the eating and the preparing. And my grandfather also grew broccolini in the, in the garden and chard and all kinds of things that now, of course, are everywhere. But in those days, you couldn't buy it at the grocery store. You had to grow it yes. and and cardoons and all of that kind of stuff. And so anyway, I, I just thought that your book was absolutely delightful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to bring you to my grandmother's kitchen. She was always in the kitchen. She always had a spoon in her hand. <laughs> she was, we would have 30, 35 people on a Sunday, every Sunday. Uh-huh. And she was never hurried. She never seemed like she was being rushed. Everything came out just utterly delicious, savory. Every, you know, looking back again, like we said before, I didn't appreciate it as a kid, but looking back, there were, my son asks me all the time, Dad, how did grandma make this? How did it make that? Some of the recipes, I'll be honest, as a trained chef, I can't reproduce some of the stuff she did. Yeah. I write some of the recipes that I know will, will, will do justice to what she did. But some of the most simple things that she did, I can't, even as a working in with Girard in France, he used to say, the great, I judge a great chef by giving him two or three ingredients and seeing what he could do. And at times, and that's very, really, I think, really what the Italian American people are. They don't need, they never needed a hundred ingredients and you right. know, all these things. Like you said, they went to the garden. What, you know, the, what defined what we're gonna eat tonight was what was in the garden. 
Right. Like you said, cardoons, we had some eggplants, and they whipped something up. And mm -hmm. the pasta wasn't always just tomato sauce, uh, you know, the ragu on Sunday. We ate a lot of vegetarian. Right. A lot of times, we didn't even realize we were eating vegetarian. Right. But my grandmother would go pick, and they, my great-grandmother would always say, I don't farm vegetable, I farm dirt. <laughs> you would go to Prospect Park and to the, the old horse stables and get the horse manure. And she would save long before we knew about composting. She was crushing the eggshells and putting the, the coffee grinds uh -huh. and everything in a little compost. And this is a little big, uh, this is, but it's true. We picked mushroom. It's still a big deal when we pick mushroom. And we used to go, well, I went with my great-grandmother, she had a little basket and she had a bent old spoon. And believe it or not, we picked mushroom at Holy Cross Cemetery in the middle of Brooklyn. Because it was really, you know, you think it was an old 150-year-old cemetery and under some of the oak trees after the rain, these mushrooms would grow. Uh -huh. And she would take me to these far ends of the, the cemetery. I was five, six years old, and I go with the spoon. She'd pick out, pick this one, pick that, but she would never take them all. She was, these old Italians were conservationists before, because she knew if she took them all, there'd be no more. Right. And we right. would go home and she would cook it. Now you're going to know what I'm going to say. They throw the oak, the silver quarter in the pan when they cook oh, the yeah. mushroom. Uh -huh. and it was, well, if it turns dark, we throw out the mushroom. And when I became a chef, everybody said to me, ah, I had a, a writer from the New York Times says to me, please, that was an old wife's tale. Maybe. But she cooked mushroom for 85 years and she never poisoned nobody. Right. So it was a wife's tale. But it was her wife's tail on the work. She didn't poison nobody. Right. And, uh, and we would jar them and stuff. And I still do that now. You go in my garage in the back, I got jars of eggplants and peppers. And I want not only my grandchildren, I want your listeners to, to, to you know, it's with COVID, one good thing came out of it. A lot of us stayed home. We didn't go on vacations. We tended, we started, people, a lot of people I know who never owned or had a garden started growing their own things. People felt because of this COVID. And I give you a little taste of how we grew the gardens in Brooklyn. Uh, there's a wonderful woman, Mary Manitti. I give her, there's a little piece about her in it. It's about the Italian gardens. You could go to YouTube and watch her thing. And uh, I try to give you that little taste. And for your listeners, maybe you start if you haven't yet. Go get some seeds, grow a tomato plant or whatever vegetable you like, and you're going to be amazed what, what a little bit of work you, what you'll tend out of it. So, David, I want to thank you so much. Everybody needs to get a copy of A Tomato Grows in Brooklyn because it is really, really yes. wonderful. And thank you so much for, for this chat today. It's just been a great deal of fun. Thank you. This has been really nice. I appreciate it. And everybody have a great fall. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, Join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. 
Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.